Hey crew, before we get started today, I just wanted to remind you that the end of the episode doesn't mean the end of the fun. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and join our Facebook group, Enterprising Interlocutions, to continue the conversation. We've also got a Discord server where fans of Just Enough Trope Network podcasts come to talk about Star Trek, films, TV shows, and more. We've got a link to the Discord in the notes for this show, and you can always find us on your social network of choice at EISTPOD. We've got something a little special today. It's been sort of half planning and half serendipity that the first few episodes of Enterprising Individuals this season have focused on Jean-Luc Picard and the Borg, seeing as how they're the focus of the new CBS All Access series entitled Picard. Last week, I spoke with author Kelly Fitzpatrick about the Voyager two-parter Scorpion, and we talked a lot about the Borg and specifically Seven of Nine, who, of course, was featured last week on Picard. And I thought we'd keep striking while this particular iron is hot. I'm the co-host of another podcast on the Just Enough Trope Network called Backtrekking, where I and my co-host Gooey Fame examine the real-world inspirations of your favorite Trek episodes, be they movies or cultural figures or even historical events. On our most recent episode, we talked about Scorpion and the fable featured in it that gives it its title, and we compare and contrast it to another piece of media that draws inspiration from that fable, the Academy Award-winning film The Crying Game. It's a great pair of episodes, it's a great movie that I I think really hasn't gotten its due over the years, and we have a fascinating discussion about the two and the theme of trying to fight against your nature, and I'm going to play it right now in its entirety. If you're not up to speed on Picard, don't worry about it because we stick mostly to the Voyager episodes and the film during the show, Uh, but if you are watching Picard, don't forget that we host a live Picard recap episode every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Central. You can follow us on Twitter at EISTpod to get notified when we go live, and follow the link that we tweet to hear us discuss the latest episode of Picard. And you can even join in the conversation by tweeting at us during the show using the hashtag Discoverage, and we'll read your questions and comments on the air. That's it for me. I'm going to throw to the other me and gooey fame. Good luck crossing the river, and with that, let's get underway. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to Backtrekking, the podcast where we look back at the real-world inspirations behind classic episodes of Star Trek. I'm one of your hosts, Caliban, and I don't know about nature, but my nature is to eat an entire bag of potato chips. I'm joined by my co-host. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Gooey Fame, and uh, you know, thanks for doing this podcast with me and not stinging me. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> We're not even halfway through yet. Uh, We're a part of the Just Enough Trope podcast network, which is home to many shows about your favorite topics like TV shows, films, comic books, video games, anime, music, and more. You can find out more by going to justenoughtrope.com or by following at justenoughtrope on Twitter. Keep the geek fires burning. And here we are. It's episode 22. Yes. Gooey, I am, uh, I'm sick of talking. (laughs) Oh, have you just, you're all talked out? Not on this episode, uh, just in general. Yeah, I've been talking a lot recently, and as the year goes on and ramps up, uh, a lot of shows and things that we've been doing on the network have been wrapping up as well. So it's that sort of um, <laughs> it's that sort of exhausted that you get after you go for a run or you come back from the gym or something like that, and you feel you feel tired, you ache, 
but there's like oh, I did I did pretty good. I could eat a bag of potato chips. Oh <laughs> well, I I had just heard that you uh, like lost part of an app and had to redo it too. Like <laughs> yes. that's just absolute. I've had that happen in the past. <sighs> devastating, yes. devastating. Yes. Yeah. Well, that the, the uh, story behind that was we were recording uh, an episode, our last episode of Just Enough Trope, when we we're talking about uh, Birds of Prey, and we got about twenty minutes in. And I had a coughing attack because um, I'm still kind of getting over uh, the bronchitis that I had. And so we just said, well, we can't go forward. So we'll just hang out and play Switch or something. We got back. I felt fine. Here we go. And I hit a button on the recorder, but it wasn't the record button. Apparently. Oh, no. So we got through like halfway through the review of Birds of Prey, uh, which you know, we did not enjoy and no. realized uh, what the situation was. And we had a real that was a real dark dark time of the soul there no yeah i've i've been through that um i think once uh with pro wrestling required viewing we took us like three tries to record an episode (laughs) we had to eventually just be like okay we'll come back to this in a couple months when we (laughs) haven't thought about yeah yeah my um my biggest uh i think professional failure uh, in that regard is um, very early on when I was doing this, I went to a convention that was a like a writer's convention, and there were a lot of uh, authors there, um, authors of sci-fi and fantasy and YA, and because I was very fortunate to get a chance to interview a lot of them, um, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't have to talk to me, um, but I think it was because the theme, one of the themes of the convention was um, development of like young writers and people of which I wasn't. Um, I just wanted to you know, get a little bit of their fame <laughs> on me, um, but they all agreed to uh, to talk to me. So I got like maybe eight hours of interviews with uh, different authors and I got home and I realized that probably 60 percent of it was worthless Oh uh, man. because and I didn't understand this at the time, but the way I was recording was um, I was using my computer because uh, I didn't have a digital recorder at that point. And I had a mic that plugged out of the USB and went right into like an XLR microphone. But it wasn't a shielded cable. And in the environment of the convention center, which had very powerful Wi-Fi and also had, you know, 8,000 kids who all had their cell phones on, there was a lot, a crazy amount of RF interference. Oh, and wow. so a lot of the, <laughs> yeah, a lot of the talking and the interviews were just obliterated by that sound that you get, you know, when you put your uh, phone too close to your car stereo or, yeah. or whatever. And it was, it was <laughs> devastating. And the only thing I could do was just, you know, take a week, uh, wear sackcloth and beat myself. And then I went back and I ended up like trans, I published the ones that were fine and I ended up um, transcribing uh, to my website and publishing um, the rest of them like that as like a text sort oh, of that's cool. article. Yeah. So you get some out of it. Yeah, but oh, that's yeah. The good thing about big mistakes is you you generally don't make them more than once. Yeah, there's so many things I've done that now I'm like constantly or not even like consciously thinking about it, you know. But like one is typically making sure I'm recording, like afraid of losing any recording. Turning it on, yeah. Yeah. Got to hit the button. (laughs) Well, before we get to today's backtrack, I wanted to talk a little bit about the news in the world of Star Trek. I heard or I read an interview uh, with Rebecca Romaine, 
who was launching a jewelry line, and she was speaking to oh. this is not some this is not a website or an outlet that we usually get Trek news from, but she was speaking to fashion site the Daily Front Row, and they're asking her about her TV work. And she said that, quote, I've also been working on Star Trek here and there, but I can't really talk about that. And oh, which oh. would lead. Yeah. And this was a very recent interview, like you know, last week. So that would lead or has led a lot of people to believe that we are or we can expect more from number one in the Star Trek universe, possibly in the form of a Pike series. Yeah. Yeah. That show, that's got to be that's like basically happening at this point. It seems. Yeah, I don't know why they. I I agree. I mean, it's been rumored for a while. Now we're actually seeing things that physical things that make you think, oh, that's going to happen. But that's if that's a gimme, and it's not, I guess, until everybody signs their um, contracts. But people want it so bad, so announce it. Yeah, maybe it is the 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 contract thing. They're like, gotta make sure. Yeah, if you announce it and people get excited, then the agent comes back and says, hmm, seems like people are pretty excited. You want to add another zero on there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, she's talking about that. I don't think I can't see anywhere else that she, you know, would fit unless they were going to have her be a very young girl in like Discovery or something like that. Hmm. Right. Yeah. That's her era, like the TOS era. Or no, I'm sorry. She was already in Discovery. Um, Like just going either forward or backward. It seems like she can only really be in that era. Mm, yeah. Maybe she I, ends up in the future or something. Or they, I don't know, maybe she just plays someone else. <laughs> I don't know why they would do that, but... They could totally do that, though, too, yeah. You're now an alien in the Enterprise reboot. Yeah, maybe Picard uh, takes a break and he ends up watching um, the X-Men movies, uh, you know, as a joke, like a, a, an in-joke, and then she's in there. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I've, I have never really got superhero movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like sci-fi, but uh, yeah, yeah, comic <laughs> books are okay. Um, okay, so that was uh, a little news talk. Uh, I want to continue the tradition of our pop-ins, where we talk about pop mm. culture for just a real brief moment. I Love want you it. to know that I just got a $4 Sonic ticket. Oh, $4. What's that? Uh, <laughs> Tuesday at 11? <laughs> well, <laughs> something like that, yeah. there. I'm a T-Mobile customer, and T-Mobile uh, oh. as, yeah. Sorry, well, it's an ad. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe I shouldn't have admitted that out loud, but like, but one of the things that they're doing is like this, um, t- it's T-Mobile Tuesdays, and they give you, you know, discounts oh. and stuff, and the newest discount was um, $4 Sonic the Hedgehog ticket. Nice, nice. And I, I thought, look- well, I'm going to go to the movie anyway, so I'll just, I'll get it cheap right here. Sure. You looking forward to it? You know, it could just be like the the trailers I've seen, the Jim Carrey jokes look kind of lame. But if it's just fun and it just celebrates this character and delivers, you know, that sort of tweener kind of um, action comedy that you're looking for, it could go down real easy. I feel like everything points to it being kind of generic, you know, like okay. all the jokes, all, you know, the the fact that it's like, you know, basically focus tested to to perfection, you know, like we got the perfect design for Sonic and, you know. We, we got the world's ex, uh, best expert at acting against CGI characters, James Marsden in there. Exactly. So it all it is all pointing to, you know, we've got Jim Carrey, who to me seems like he might be kind of checked out. I don't know. Like those at least those jokes weren't bringing anything to, you know. To get me excited, I, but I see. Uh, well, we see him interact with other like people and characters in the trailer, but I see a lot of scenes of him on his own. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, reacting, reacting to a screen that he's looking at, or just inside of his um, Doctor Robotnik mobile or whatever, and 
And that's, you know, that's, it's like Robin Williams. Like, you can have him bounce off somebody, but he can also just, you know, stand there and be a comedy dervish on his own. Sure, yeah. Maybe that's the best way to use him. Um, something that I like about Sonic, um, and I know that, like, Sonic has some good games, and he's got some bad games, and he's got some, he's got some weird, like, sort of detours in his lore. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that have to do with trying to freshen up, like, the original premise or or uh, gameplay of his game. But it's very basic. Like, we don't yeah. have to worry about Echidna or Werewolf Sonic or any of that stuff. Like, the core of Sonic is runs fast, wants rings. Like, mm-hmm. we've got that, and you can make a movie out of that. You can sort of take him out of his world, too, and it can right. probably work okay. And in you this know? case, yeah, he's he's out of his world. He's, he's on Earth or whatever. Yeah, but to, even to me, that choice points towards, like, they've done the... You know, like, well, people want to see, you know, real life. So we had to, you know, <laughs> make it set in on Earth, you know, instead of wherever. But I, I guess I get I, that, you know. <laughs> yeah, I guess. What's he going to do? Just hang out uh, Green Hill Zone. But um, bringing it to real life, though, uh, means that we don't get him hanging out in the Casino Night Zone, which would be great. And has probably the best music. Yeah, I, that's like the best I love all of those types of levels, carnival, you know, whatever, yeah, those yeah. various types. I guess it also is like, you know, <laughs> I guess you'd have to get kind of creative with how you make a bunch of ramps and stuff <laughs> look like a, a place people live. But I guess they've done it in the 3D Sonic games a little bit more. Yeah, right. Uh, and next film, you bring uh, James Marsden to Sonic's world. Yeah, there, there you go. I mean, that's, that's the... Uh, the Smurfs did it. Sonic can do it. Space Jam did it. <laughs> yes, there, there you go. <laughs> Isn't this kind of like the first half of Space Jam, only with Sonic? Sonic Jam. Yeah, Sonic like Jam. It's, yeah. It, I think this is a well-worn premise. <laughs> I hope Sonic gets a human girlfriend. I think that's something from one of the games that they should uh, adapt. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those, like, it's gone so far, like, now I'm afraid to ask, but what what's going on with the is it knuckles what's what's the knuckles meme what is that knuckles which one there's a knuckles meme yeah and it's like an alt-right thing oh god i don't know okay then never mind forget it (laughs) yeah maybe i don't want to (laughs) know yeah maybe it's not that widespread then don't worry about it (laughs) not yet (laughs) speaking of memes i used the billy eilish at the oscars meme correctly today and i felt 10 years younger which one's this? What? Why don't I know about what you're talking about? Oh, Billie Eilish was at the Oscars. And I I mean, the follow-up question is why. But I mean, she's famous, whatever. And somebody was doing something. Some older actor told some kind of joke or something. And some people laughed. But it's just so perfect. Like, you just show this very famous, rich and famous 18-year-old. And she's got this look like the fuck is going on here oh kind of side i did look. see that now now yeah yeah I, did, I haven't seen a lot of that meme but i saw that picture and i was like kind of disturbed and i was like i'm moving on <laughs> uh, the last okay. i heard about her was her talking about you know rappers not having guns and i was, I was like yeah are you my mom <laughs> like <what? laughs> these rappers don't have guns He's not, he he didn't sell drugs. Yeah. Well, whatever. She's just calling it like she sees it. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. 
Bruce Springsteen never worked in a factory. But, you know. <laughs> right, yeah. He doesn't even own a motorcycle. Come on. <laughs> well, uh, anyway, um, I guess we'll, we can do a pop-in later and talk about our impressions of uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, the film. Yeah. <laughs> or people can uh, hear you talk about it on uh, virtual theater, too, oh, yeah. on your other podcast. Uh, let's get to our featured subject for today's show. <clears throat> A scorpion, which cannot swim, asks a frog to carry it across a river on the frog's back. The frog hesitates, afraid of being stung by the scorpion, but the scorpion argues that if it did that, they would both drown. The frog considers this argument sensible and agrees to transport the scorpion. Midway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog anyway, dooming them both. The dying frog asks the scorpion why it stung the frog, despite knowing the consequence, to which the scorpion replies, I couldn't help it. It's in my nature. It's an old story. It's often misattributed to Aesop, but its moral is similar to another common aphorism that a leopard can't change its spots. But what if that Mm. leopard is an IRA soldier who falls in love with the girlfriend (laughs) of his hostage? That's the plot of the 1992 movie, The Crying Game. Take up my wallet. I want you to do something for me. I want you to find her out. Tell her I was thinking of her. Listen, there's something I should tell you. Shouldn't I go? Yes. This he can be of the New York Times calls the crying game ingenious and exceptionally well acted. You vanished quite effectively. You know that, Jimmy. Jimmy, is it? Leave her out of this. Are you gonna tell me what's wrong? No, not here. The Crying Game, for as big as it was in 1992, and it was huge, it was the uh, Gangnam style of 1992. Really? uh, Has just about disappeared now. Uh, I had to kind of dig it up to... uh, to, to, yeah. to watch it. Had you seen the movie before? I had never seen it. I had only heard of it. I had no clue what it was about. Yeah. Um, and in fact, in my attempt to watch it, first I went, I got a DVD from the library and it was like probably one of the first DVDs <laughs> ever made. And yeah. It was terrible quality. And then did I it have, it. did it have no uh, cover art? Is it just uh, totally silver, like blank on the top of the disc? Yeah, it did. And um, yeah. the it was like a box within like a black void and i was like can i zoom in like what 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 are you describing you're describing depression depression is like a box (laughs) within a black void it was definitely like a prototype dvd i feel like (laughs) this should not be sold so i was like okay this is their this is probably their newest copy they could find you know yeah (laughs) the library they dvds used to come like that they come in paper boxes um the cover would be, you know, just like folded tag board, and then there'd be like a plastic latch. And then the disc itself would be blank on top and then have the movie on the bottom. 
And then there, sometimes there would be a little colored ring around the um, hole in the middle that would say the crying game or whatever on it. Yeah. And then sometimes you would get, um, you'd get have like, if it was a foreign film, you'd have, I got this anime a lot. Like the top side would be uh, round my one half um, sub and then you flip it over oh. and the bottom side is the dub. I had that. I had a copy of UHF. That had the commentary oh. track on one side. Yeah, or the commentary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they didn't care ne- necessarily about aesthetics. They just had to get it out. Yeah, and it might. I mean, it was a storage problem too. I'm sure. Oh yeah. Now you can buy like one uh, HD Blu-ray or whatever that's got all six Star Trek films on it. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah this this movie was huge, and really the big thing about this movie in 1992 and just just so you know two things one this is totally my idea so if you're mad about what we're talking about you know come at me at k-a-1-i-b-a-n on twitter (laughs) number two we're going to spoil the hell out of this whole thing so this is um this is a movie that and we'll talk about the quote-unquote twist or twists in the movie and if this is a movie with a gimmick or a gimmick with a movie uh, we'll get into that but this is a movie that it's best to not know a lot going in yeah, um, yeah. But when I saw this in the theater in 1992, uh, that was me. I went in knowing nothing about it. The reason that I went is because it was very highly rated. Everybody who talked about it uh, gave it thumbs up, gave it, you know, 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10. I think it was the first 10 out of 10 I ever saw my uh, local newspaper give to a film. So I oh, thought, wow. I got to go to this thing. And so, yeah, I went knowing nothing at all. Was this, uh, did you bring anyone? Did you convince anyone to go, like Thin Red Line style? Oh, my God. <laughs> Are you just collecting stories about my <laughs> about my theatrical misfires? <laughs> That's, yeah, basically is what I'm while trying you're, to... While you're collecting them, uh, why have this one, too. Um, I convinced a bunch of friends to go to uh, The Fifth Element, which... You might understand. Uh, you may not understand this because um, you probably grew up at a time where it was on like constant repeat on DVD, and so your generation probably loves that movie. But when we saw that movie, they promised us the trailer said Star Wars for the '90s. So oh, we're thinking boy. this is going to be great, yeah. And then we all, I'm like, <laughs> "Come on, guys! It's Star Wars for the '90s." And we all went, and yeah, we walked out, and everybody's like, "Fuck you, dude! Fuck you! <laughs> this is not that was not Star Wars for the '90s." That's yeah. That's what led to the Phantom Menace. They're like, you know what? I'll show you how to do Star Wars for the nineties. Well, if that's true, that's still not good. But (laughs) yeah, actually, dude, yeah, (laughs) I was in high school at the time, and I brought a date to it, and this was maybe like our third or fourth date. Um, I I don't know if we were really like officially dating, but we were certainly like seeing a lot of each other. Mm -hmm. And I said, like, this movie's gonna be great. You gotta go, and um. You know, we go through the movie, and uh, what happens in the movie happens. And I was like, did, wow, did you like that movie? And she's like, yeah, this is great, yeah. And I remember, like, the next day, um, we were in uh, we were different cla- uh, in different classes. So, you know, I wasn't in the same, like, locker hall as her. But I remember going to see her and interrupting a conversation, which was just like, and then the girl had a dick. Yeah, yeah. And so- me thinking, that's great. that's that's a great conversation i wonder what they're talking about i wonder if uh i wonder if she was happy that i took her to that movie or not 
and oh, the, if it was um, some some smack talking there about the yeah, movie. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't like, yeah, it seemed like a negative conversation. And the result of that conversation was she picked the movies from then on in our relationship. So so it didn't work. <laughs> like that didn't, that wasn't a successful viewing because no. it was like you lost trust, basically. Yeah, like later on when we broke up, I think that was like one of like, the top three things, <laughs> the grievances. which was the reason. Yeah, the grievances. You so, took me to see the crying game. So a lot of uh, let's see, we saw the Sandlot, which again, that's another one that was probably just on rotation, like in your household. So you like the Sandlot. Everyone but, loves the Sandlot. But yeah. uh, we went to see the Sandlot, and it's like this is a baby movie. <laughs> this is for little kids. Yeah, <laughs> she liked it. I didn't. Uh, we she made me see Jack the Bear, which nobody's ever heard of. Because I have no was, idea what that is. <laughs> yeah, it's another just a uh, bunch of like kind of weepy family dramas, and I wanted to see the Crying Game. Mm-hmm. Well, you know. Who you might be vindicated now, or maybe you're not because no one remembers it. Am I? Yeah, I don't know. I was trying to get information about this film, like I was googling around, um, not doing like the usual Rotten Tomatoes thing because it's still it's like 98, 99%, like it's still very high on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, but more importantly, I was trying to reach into a community that I would have had no contact with or not even been aware of in 1992, uh, the gay community, mm-hmm. and I couldn't get anything. Half the results are like contemporary reviews that are in some archive, you know, a variety or something like that. Yeah. Like people aren't really talking about it now. And I was trying to get a, a sense now that we have that gay culture is alive and all over the Internet, like what they think. And I saw that it was still really divided. There are really strong opinions on the positive side. And there are people who say that it's a very negative movie um, from an LGBTQ perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah, and I I can see that because the there there's a lot in the movie that's like, well, for one, the twist that we're talking about. I think the way it's done, you know, is kind of you know sensationalized, you know, mm-hmm, kind mm-hmm. of a, gim- a gimmick or whatever. And it yeah, it feels it feels bad watching it. I think, but um, as far as the the character goes, like I think there is a lot of like depth there in the character that I think you know people can you know, hook into and, you know, I, I feel like they honor the character a little bit. So I don't know. I feel yeah. like there's, I can see how someone could have two different, you know, ways of looking at the movie. I think that's an interesting perspective. Um, I'm not just for my own part. I'm not excited that the movie, uh, like you mentioned, like sensationally plays, on the white bread cis expectations of like 1992 American film goers. However, seeing the movie, it's a unique cinematic experience that you don't get often to see it in a theater because the way that Neil Jordan crafts the film, you, the things that he wants to surprise you with and make you react to work, you know, like when, Forrest Whitaker is like wiped out by that APC. Like that is a shock. Yeah. And I remember people being shook in the theater when that happened. And then people are watching um, in the middle of the movie, you know, when people are watching the scene between um, Fergus and Dill and, you know, we learn what we learn. um, People were, people were again, shooketh to the max and didn't calm down for a while after that. Like it was another five or 10 minutes. Right. People were just, you know, upset and sort of talking amongst themselves. And I think that Jordan anticipated that. And I think he smartly lets the movie kind of spin its wheels for a while until we move into that scene, which is a great, 
it's a great dramatic irony scene where Dill goes and visits Fergus at the construction site. And so now, like, you've got all these characters who are you know, hooting and hollering and doing the whole uh, construction worker thing. And we understand, like, the, the, the depth of what's going on, like, uh, what they're ignorant of. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, but the, it's like the way they reveal that she's a transgender woman. I, you know, I I guess I can see... Like I understand what you're saying, and I th- I think it it's, it works to maybe also show what the protagonist is kind of feeling, but you know it does you know w- like you were saying it plays to that sort of mm, ignorance a little bit too. Yeah, like he he knows what he is doing at this point. This movie won a Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Okay, and um, Jay Davidson was uh, nominated for uh, Best Supporting Actor. Which a lot of people argued, <laughs> you kind of ruins the twist of the movie, uh, if if you're worried about that sort of thing. Um, but it's a, you know being his first movie, like it's quite an honor for him to uh, get a best supporting actor nomination, and I think he does a great job in the film. And if you look at like Jordan's output, I'm not sure how many of his films um, you're familiar with. Um, he doesn't. He uh, directed Interview with a Vampire. Okay, yeah, I um, haven't seen that in a long time, but yeah. yeah. And he did. He's also a writer. He didn't write that, of course. Um, he wrote and directed Michael Collins. Um, he is um, also um, Irish himself, uh, and is a Catholic. So, like themes of like the IRA and and Michael Collins and that sort of thing are important to him. Okay. He did. He also did a film called Breakfast on Pluto, which I haven't mm. seen and I really want to see. Um, he wrote and directed it. It is about a. Um, uh, Killian Murphy plays a character who is a um, transgender uh, man who is uh, like lives in Ireland, basically, and is trying to sort of. It's also kind of wrapped up with the IRA. It's I consider it like a spiritual sequel to like this film in a lot of ways. Okay, okay, well, yeah, I'm not familiar with any of this stuff. Looking at, well, actually, I saw Greta. Oh, um, you see, okay, yeah. Well, how was that? Um, you know, I at the time I, I went with my partner Kayla, and I, I mm-hmm. remember. It was one they wanted to see, and for some reason, I didn't like it. I felt like it was. I also felt like it was a bit uh, sensationalizing certain things that and I that mm. turned me off. And like right after the movie, I was like, "Well, that was awful." I said that out loud, and oh, then, wow. but they were like, "What are you talking about? That was great." <laughs> and like I've kind of felt bad about it since then. And then like yeah. like a week later, was thinking about the movie, and I was like. Actually, it was all right. So I don't know. <laughs> I just there was something about it that gave me such a negative reaction. But uh, I'd be I'd be open to going back to that and seeing whatever it was. That's interesting. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, uh, I don't want to speak for him, but as far as I can tell, like Neil Jordan is not gay. He is not, you know, sort of in the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. Um. But he's making these films like he's not a like a Todd Haynes or or something like that. But he's making these films that sort of I don't I'm not sure who the arbiter is, but they sort of butt up against what you think of as queer cinema. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and there, there's definitely some. I did like read some stuff of him talking about the movie, and and it, it feels like there's some. You know, there's obviously some lack of understanding a little bit of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but not like it's. But this isn't like a Hallmark film or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like I feel like he doesn't. There are definitely things he doesn't get, but he's not like totally ignorant. Yeah, you know, no, it's I, like, 
It like, seems like he really wants to help out. It's like, hey, let me help. I'll make some of these. It's like, we've got a lot of like, you know, gay actors and directors. We're fine. No, no, I really want to help. He's a real Fergus. You know what I mean? It's in his nature. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> he's, here, he's here to save all the trans women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or but, just mess everything up. Yeah. But like, I, I read him talking about the character and he kept saying, I feel maybe it was him, but I kept reading interviews referring to. Uh, I'm bad with the names, but the 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 woman in the movie they kept say, referring to her as like a gay man, but like as far as I could, t- and that might be a time oh, thing, but okay. everything I gathered from the movie, like she refers to herself as a woman. Everyone, mm-hmm. like she's a woman, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. I, 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 so that was well, I kept seeing the you know it was about uh, Fergus going and being involved between these two gay men, you know, yeah, Forrest Whitaker see, and her. And I'm, that I makes see that. That makes a lot more sense. I, I never thought of it that way because when she, cause she is very, you know, like domineering in, in the relationship uh-huh. and like, and you can just assume that it's because she's part of his like IRA cell and she's, and we know that Fergus is, he's kind of moony. He needs somebody to like kick him in the butt to get him going. But but yeah, but if he's like literally like directing her or like writing her as like, no, no, like you're a dude here. You're like you're the one who's sort of, you know, in this relation. You're you're the man in this relationship. Oh, oh, wait, you're you're talking about the IRA woman. I was talking about um uh God, what's the name? I'm bad with uh Dill. Dill oh. I was saying. Oh, in, okay. In the interviews I read they were saying Dill, you know, Dill is like a gay a gay man, but Dill li- lives in Act, you know, is social sure. like, socially a woman, you know? So I, even I think I saw Neil Jordan say that, I think. So that was where I was coming, like, where there's oh, okay. maybe right. some. I also re- I also know the review you're talking about, but that uh, that one also came off as kind of transphobic because when they were talking about Dill, they said, you know, like, the only the, the only good woman is dead or, like, really a man was what they were saying in, in that review. And I was like, well, no, Dill Dill's a woman, you know, like I don't know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it, <laughs> so you've got a a guy who uh you've got a guy who is not gay uh directing this film about a protagonist that is discovering he's gay, uh who is in love with a trans woman, played by an actor who's gay but is not a trans woman, and you got us two idiots trying to talk through this entire thing. <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to have little uh, bumps like that as we go. Um but anyway, uh, whether or not you meant it, I feel like I realized something about um, that the Miranda Richardson's character. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There is something. And she's very like, because I do feel like all the other characters have a lot of uh, nuance to them. Yeah. Uh, whereas I feel like her character is just like, I'm a stone cold villain. And so maybe there is something to that, but I don't know. Um, I believe that, uh, yeah, Stephen Ree plays the... Um, the main character and he is uh, Fergus and I think, Oh, I think he's great in this film, but I've always thought that he's great. I've always thought that he hasn't gotten the spots in Hollywood that he could have. And I'll admit that there's, I don't know. He's got a real particular look about him. He's got a real particular thing he can do. And so maybe it's not, doesn't fit into like a typical Hollywood fare, but he's really good in this. He's in another, I think Neil Jordan also did the movie, um, the end of the affair, uh, that Julian okay. Moore was in, yeah, and he is um, in that as well, and I just think that he's he's really great. Yeah, I know nothing about him. I know none of his other movies, but I was also I was Im- like immediately drawn to him. 
Um, and I think with almost all the characters in the movies where there's these one-on-one scenes with him and Dill or him and Forrest Whitaker's character, like there's mm-hmm. all this, you know, great, just great chemistry acting. Um, yeah. I would love to see more movies with him in it. Forrest Whitaker, um, just talking about him is, is really great in this too, for the yeah. little, the short time that he's in it. And I never know. There's a lot of things that you don't notice. Uh, when you're watching the movie for the first time, uh, when I saw it this time, of course, uh, and the credits end with and starring Forrest Whitaker, I'm like, oh, he, yeah, he's gonna die. <laughs> like he's in, he's in about maybe 30 minutes of this movie, but he's okay. arguably one of the the most famous people in the movie. So he gets like a very special credit at the end. And even if you hadn't seen the movie, if you know like how credits work, you're like, oh, I don't think we're gonna. This guy's not gonna make it out of this situation. Yeah. Okay. I didn't think about that. I was, I was really confused at first, though. Like I was maybe in my own head about it because I was like, is the movie about this uh, kidnapping? About, yeah. You, that <laughs> yeah. that is a movie right there. On sure. Its own. Yeah. But I was like, they're they're doing all the like beats I would sort of expect from like you befriend your kidnappy or whatever. Yeah. But uh, it was happening so fast that I was like, what is going on? Like, what is, what is this movie? And then I'm looking at the cover and it's got the, the woman on there. I'm like, she's not even like, I don't even think she's like a main character of this, but I was so confused. In (laughs) in the, uh, the Mia Wallace hair, uh, two years before Pulp Fiction. Yeah. I was like, Oh, this is like, I actually, I looked at the cover because it was not a great quality picture on my library DVD case. And I was like, Uma Thurman's in this movie. (laughs) Okay. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The first, that first part of that's something that I really like. I think the first part of the movie is really strong. Um, I think the middle act is really strong and then it, the ending is kind of just happens and I'm not sure that it's really great, but that first part of the movie is like almost like a one act, like in itself, like a, like yeah. a Harold, Harold Pinter play or something like that, where you, these two, the hostage taker and the hostage, you know, sort of, um, uh, get closer and, and sort of, uh, identify with each other. And when you think about the fact that Forrest Whitaker, who is fairly young at this point, but he's, he's been doing this for a while. He's acting with a bag on his head almost the entire time. And yeah. he just does it like a really great job. And I think he presents in his characterization uh, a character that is not as straightforward as just, you know, a British soldier. Like we get that there is a there's a sensitivity to him. We get that there is a he has different yes. like layers there. And you think, oh, man, he gets run over. We're not going to learn anything about this guy. But then, of course, the movie moves on and we learn that there was a bunch of things that we didn't know about this guy. Yeah, it turns out we're going to like explore him posthumously and it works really mm-hmm. well i think yeah yeah and the, yeah i agree with you that beginning part like stands is a standalone story it it is good as a story you could stop watching the movie there and be like that's an interesting short film you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> why didn't those guys watch where they were going yeah um there's a couple parts in the movie you know i was talking before about the kind of theatricality that that jordan brings to this particular uh, production and there's a couple parts that um, I think are unintentionally funny even okay. in, in any drama, in the tersus drama, uh, you know, I was mentioning Pinter before, like you need to have like moments of release, but I'm not sure you necessarily want, I, I, what I'm saying is, I don't know if the filmmaker wanted the releases that, that he got. Okay. Um, what, what are you thinking? There is this, so we see Fergus uh, escape to England after um, the raid 
and um, Jody's killed. And we see this continuing repetitive reverie of his where Jody is is bowling. You know, he's he's throwing this cricket ball. Yeah. And we see that image over and over, and we don't really know what to make of it. And I don't think Fergus, Fergus knows what to make of it. <laughs> and then after um, the, the quote-unquote twist happens in the film and Fergus sort of retreats back to his apartment, we see Jody again. But instead, he just kind of walks out and he's kind of like throwing the ball up and down. And he's got this look on his face like, (laughs) (laughs) okay, okay. And I didn't think about that. That killed in the theater. Like it was, you know, if the intention was to be like, I guess you don't know everything about me, you know, Um, that totally killed. Uh, Wow. Also, at the end, so (laughs) unintentional music choices. Um, you know, at the beginning, it's uh, when a man loves a woman mm-hmm. is playing as we're looking at panning over and looking at the uh, the fun fair. At the end, "Stand by Your Man" plays, and that got a huge laugh in the uh, theater that I was in. And I'm not sure. Oh no, yeah, it's kind of on you for picking a song like that. But is that all that's in your like? Are you trying to be a merry prankster with your music choices? I, yeah, your, I don't think so. I th- is your I think jukebox it's... just real limited, like white man? I think it's supposed to be the other way around with that one, but <laughs> yeah. I now that I've, yeah, I get it, <laughs> I get it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so it's, it's just things like that that make you go like, you know, I I think that there is an argument for adding this film to like the uh, LGBTQ plus canon of films, but you're you're trying real hard to get out of it. <laughs> like you keep doing these things that are like, well, why would you do that? Like you keep calling attention to to right you're sort of self-conscious about it right i mean and it's you know regardless i guess it's still worth a discussion you know if it even if it wasn't uh completely successful in what it's going for you know yeah yeah um i mean so the you, you mentioned the ending being kind of weak and uh also when you were talking about him throwing the the cricket or whatever whatever that you do in cricket i'm not quite sure <laughs> yeah right but just these constant the constant um visions of him and the ending it all makes me think about also i guess two ways you could interpret the movie and i could see how you could get um a different you know be mad at it or not i guess is what i'm trying to say so there's yeah. like is he is Fergus doing this out of some sort of guilt that he has? And, you know, they're talking about the scorpion story. Is yeah. it yeah. I want I'm a good person. I'm trying to make right for my sins, which seems kind of, you know, I guess uh, cis guilt. I don't know. I don't know how to <laughs> interpret it. It's kind of messed I up. Think, I think I, I see where you're going. I think that you, we have to just take it at face value because we've already talked about Neil Jordan and trying to help out, you know, and, and being a straight guy. But we just have to judge the movie with, uh-huh. what, with what was made. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. But that I mean, it sort of seems like that regardless. But I, I guess the other way I, I thought about it is like that – the face value, I guess, interpretation is like he, you know, he does fall in love with Dill and he would, you know, do that for her in the end of the movie, you know? Yeah, I I, like I agree. I think that okay. he is. Okay. Yeah, no, I think so. And I was, I was just about to ask you that, actually, because like in 1992, when I saw this movie and I was um, a straight, uh, you know, white teenager in high school, 
I who knew no gay people or actually that's totally not true. I didn't know I knew any gay people. Okay. <laughs> um I just thought he's doing the right thing. And the movie doesn't help with this because the movie really I I really do think that Jay Davidson did a, a great job for this being his first role, but the movie kind of really abandons him in the third act and you know cuz Dilt gets drunk and is goes nuts and we understand this character has had trauma in her past but it doesn't leave her anywhere to go like it's such a thriller cliche that like oh somebody's got a gun at the end you know what I mean and so it kind of abandons her character a little um, in the end but I just figured that Fergus was a guy who didn't he thought he was being sold a bill uh, bill of goods Uh, it turned out to be not what it was but he's still a good guy we know that that's in his nature and so he is helping out, you know, deal out of this situation and he pays a price, but he's willing to pay it because he's a good guy and he cares about Dill as a friend. But as an adult who's been through a lot more than that, what we're talking about here is the nature, right? Yeah. It, his nature is Fergus is, is gay. <laughs> that's, that's what we're talking about, right? Okay. Yeah. I mean, well, so not only is he a good person who doesn't want to like shoot a guy with a bag on his head, but also he is somebody who is attracted not only to women, but also men as he's discovering. Yeah. Well, I was viewing it more as he, <laughs> maybe they definitely weren't considering this, but he was, you know, considering that or realizing that, I guess that he likes trans women, at, you know, at least. Oh, yeah, not just, right. Yeah. yeah. So more, more, I guess, more specific than gay. Like that he... And he's still fighting it kind of at the end. He's still uncomfortable by being called honey and stuff like yeah. that. But I, th- saw, yeah, I, read a, I read a stupid review that it was just some straight guy doing his best, just like Neil Jordan. But he was like, and the, the perspex glass that he's behind is, you know, that's like, that's the box that he's in. But he can see through it, you know, and someday he'll be able to get past it. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, yeah, all right. Clumsy metaphor, okay, but I guess okay. I, I don't disagree. <laughs> yeah. You know. I guess I just, yeah, I see it more as him sort of like coming to terms with a uh, you know a trans woman's identity and and you know struck definitely struggling to respect it you know but yeah. that's that's what i got out of it that and it's not a you know it's not he's not perfect which is the point that's that's what i got out of it it's in my nature is that um maybe this story isn't it's not so clear cut you know what i mean like he this this guy is not a a toad or a scorpion he's a, you know he's a human being i guess interesting because even when she when she pulls the gun this comes after him sh- shaving her head yes going i will just make you look like a man by cutting your hair which this is this is a disguise there's no subtext here um, I'm not. I'm not rebelling against. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. And it. You know. Regardless of the intent, there. It, that's. I imagine that's kind of a fucked. That or not imagine that's a fucked up thing to do. It's traumatic. You know? yeah. 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 It's traumatic for sure. And then, and then, he's telling her while she's completely fucked up. <laughs> uh, what he. You know. His whole story actually. Yeah. And I don't. So I just thought. You know. There's. There's a bit more to it then he's just a good guy you know because oh, i yeah, think the yeah. whole basis of him coming there and not telling her even before it's revealed 
that she's trans it it's like this is weird why aren't you this even if that wasn't an element it's like this is there's no way this ends well you know yeah i um there's a thing that happens a lot now that um people are more um i'm just so woke is such a cliche i guess i don't know what else to say that people are more aware of injustice and are more active you know we are on the lookout for injustice where people criticize films who themselves are totally against injustice but are portraying injustices for the purpose of for a didactic purpose Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean like i hate it i see this a lot in like you know like young people who are really like excited about being woke and they criticize movies and they don't realize that movie is on your side but here's the thing Characters aren't people, so things can happen to characters, and it can be horrible, and it's horrible to be didactic, to be a teachable sort of thing. And that's one of the things that I like about some of the things that happened in this film, even though, you know, cutting her hair, that it's, it's horrible. Yeah. I like that it's got, like, this plausible excuse, but it's really, like, it's it's metaphorical for, like, the struggle that he's going through. I think that that's a really... Um, it's a really stark and it's a really a creative sort of way to express that. And a guy like Fergus, who is Irish Catholic and grew up what we can assume is, you know, like poor in, in, in Ireland, he has no context for anything that's happening. And he goes to see uh, Dill uh, sing, you know, on the karaoke night or whatever at that bar. And, and he's watching her, and, and she's in this, like, glittery dress, and it's all kind of shabby, but yet it has, like, this sort of appeal to it. You know, it's still sort of kind of cool and sexy. And yeah. the the director plays this really straight, so to speak, in that once Fergus knows what he knows, uh, he runs out of the thing, and he tr- he goes to the the bar the next night to try to apologize to Dill, and it's like... Nazi commandant hat and it's like every gay stereotype he seems like he's like right. fighting through yeah, to I get to her. <laughs> yeah. But in the scenes in the bar before that, if you just look in the margins, you can tell, oh, this is a gay bar or at least this uh-huh. is a bar that is frequented by uh, both straight and uh, gay people. But it's it's well done. It's like subtle enough that the audience may, might not pick up and Fergus definitely doesn't understand. It's it's not it's like that. It's not a great movie. Wouldn't recommend anybody to go to Kevin Smith movies for like uh, nuanced depictions of gay no. people. But it's that it's that moment in Chasing Amy where Ben Affleck sees uh, Joey Lauren Adams kiss a girl, and then he looks around. and It's like, oh, there's a bunch of short hair girls kissing. This, oh, okay, now I get it. Right. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's. Um, I don't know. Just someone who's going. He, he's going from one place to another, and you know, sl- like. Sometimes with people with with you know straight cisgender people like stuff like that will just hit you like a, a ton of bricks and you know eventually change <laughs> who you are you know like I I think we don't see the full outcome of what's happening to him or you know like what he's what he's experiencing but I I almost like that a lot more that it's you know I I read a review where it was mad that he wasn't like nice about this stuff, but it's like, that's what you were saying. Like, that's what would, that's how he would react. That's how someone like that would react. And it's kind of the point, you know? Yeah. They're talking about him being disgusted when he found out, but it's like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like that struck me as like, 
good <laughs> in the story. Not not like good that that happens, but yeah, you know, good to show that like even someone like that can. It's like still love. They still love this person, and that and they are you know re- realizing like, oh, the world isn't exactly how I thought it was. I guess. Yeah, and then even as I said that, I I have some complaints that I think he, like his like nauseated re- reaction was maybe a little bit too much or over the top. I mean, he hits yeah, her. The... Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, I can see somebody being shocked at not being in the situation they thought they were, and then when the other person tries to press it, just, you know, strikes out, like, yeah. physically. But, I mean, th- th- it kind of goes into, like, just stereotype over yeah, what that's... you would expect. Yeah. The movie does, again, like, with that whole reveal, like, the way they do it, it does. Neil, what are you doing? Come on. Yeah. But then, but that's so, what's so great about the story and the character is that like he immediately goes back to her, and I just love the exchange of for Stephen Free, who I think is a great actor, but is definitely of like the stone faced school, to see him go back to her, not because out of obligation, like really being sorry, and then she's like needling about needling him about like, oh, do you want to? So do you like me or do you want to be with me? He's like, I look, I'm, I'm, I guess maybe. We'll see. Like he's just trying to work all this stuff out in his head because this is somewhere he's never met, uh, been before. So, so okay. So the the Scorp- scorpion and the frog. Does this movie? <laughs> um, is it saying that you 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 are the scorpion? You really can't change your nature, or is it sort of putting that up there for for criticism and uh, and ridicule, saying that's not that's just a story. I mean, you can't. Yeah, that's that's what I was. That's where I'm where I'm at with it is trying to (laughs) my the positive interpretation that I wanted to take away from it because I I did enjoy the movie was that 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 story is sort of just a story. But I guess the movie does lean towards being like, you know, with the hostage situation in the beginning all the way until the end, just like you're doing these bad things, but you're actually a good guy. <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. Okay. That's, that's how I felt about it is that like, regardless of whether, however he felt about Dill, he mostly went back to her because of guilt, you know, like <laughs> now I'm not saying that for sure. That's I'm saying that's maybe in it, something you could pull out of it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah. Did you? I mean, he dresses her in Jody's old clothes, so I think yeah. that there is a suggestion of like unresolved feelings for for Jody that you know can never be resolved now, too. Right. Well, um, and then there's also uh, when he is confessing to her. Yeah. She. He know. He know. Like. I believe. I believe <laughs> she, he knows. He he's great. Uh, Jay Davidson is is great in that scene too because it's like, oh, you kill him, you kill me. You know, it's like it's just really funny. Yeah, doing the finger guns or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But like, he has. He obviously has to know. He can't be stupid enough to like think that this is going to get across at all, and you could have an get an actual response or whatever from it. But at the same time, he's going like aren't you mad at me? Like, don't you want to kill me? And it's like, yeah, you know, it's like, I don't know. That's, that seems like even a very self-serving moment for, for him too, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, he's looking for, um, 
he's looking for punishment. He's looking for, you know, to, to be retributed against. And yeah. But uh, still in a way where he like, I feel like he knows he can't actually get the punishment, you know, because because she's too screwed up to do anything. Yeah. And she's and, and she's somewhat passive too, you know, as, as, a, as a character and a person at this yeah. point. There is um, just before we wrap up here, there is um, a lot of talent in this movie. Um, oh, yeah. We're going to talk of... about Dave. Yeah. His name? I can yeah. remember his name, but I can't remember the IRA female <laughs> soldier. Name. Yeah. Miranda Richardson uh, is uh, <laughs> been in a lot of stuff. She's great. Um, Jim Broadbent, um, who has been in a ton of th- stuff and doesn't look anything like he did in this movie as the bartender um, oh, is in yeah. it as well. Uh, Golden Globe. Globe uh, winning actor. Um, and then, of course, yeah, Ralph Brown is Dave. And Ralph Brown is like one of those actors who's he's he's kind of like a, a cult movie actor guy. Did you ever see With Nail and I? Oh, I've heard of this. I've, I've never seen it. You should. Uh, he is in that. He's in Alien 3. OK, <laughs> um, he's uh, he's in the pirate radio or the boat that rocked. I think they called it over here. And then he's in Wayne's World, too. He's the uh, Del Rody, like the uh, or sorry, Del Preston, the. Uh, the famous roadie who talks about like Aussie wouldn't go on stage without a brandy snifter full of uh, brown M and M's, you know, little oh, sweet shop. Yeah, okay. that's great. That was I, that was a great role. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he was Rick Ollie in the Phantom Menace, the guy that they uh, told. Speaking of promises, they told us was going to be the new Han Solo, and he's just a guy who just sits in the ship and goes, "Well, they're attacking." I just watched this movie. And I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's he's the slightly balding guy that that flies the uh, flight of the navigator uh, ship, Padme's ship, uh, oh. as they leave uh, Naboo and head to Tatooine. Yeah, I liked. I I remember liking the crew in general of that ship. So he's probably like his, his big lines are: "We lost the shields," and then there's the whole <laughs> thing where R two goes out and like twists the thing, and he's like. Shields are back. Like, that's basically all he says in the oh, film. Thankless role, for sure. Yeah. Well, well <laughs> thankless this... thankless audience member. We, we were promised so much in, like, the uh, lead-up to Phantom Menace. Uh, all the promotional stuff, and the they released that music video, The Duel of the Fates. It's like, oh, this is going to be great. And then, you know, we got what we got. Yeah, they, yeah, they dropped the ball. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to mention him as the, like, comic relief of this movie, even though he does some bad stuff. He is... He's kind of funny a lot in this movie <laughs> with his little tracksuit and, and stuff. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's weird. I don't, I guess I don't know if there's a commentary being made about the difference between Ireland or, or where Fergus is from or, and then um, Spitalfields in East London where he ends up. But uh-huh. he's the only person who doesn't know about dill you know like he asks dill if her co-workers know but you get the impression that they do like everybody knows yeah i mean i guess and that i i kind of like it just because it is like it does show dill briefly as like living a somewhat conventional life you know that and not and not just the like sad trans role that you usually see in these kind of movies, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like you get you get uh, I think a more realistic human portrayal, you know. There there's obviously awful sad things that happen, but you also see like yeah, they have a <laughs> pretty decent job and social life, you know, like Yeah. Yeah, you're not just seeing the Dave slapping her around constantly, you know. Yeah. And that kind of gets merged with 
the woman in trouble role that you would see in a lot of these um, noirish or like uh, you know urban crime type films. Um, yeah, Dylan in fact, ends up they, kind of being that too. They they sort of solve the the Dave issue pretty yeah that quickly, gets solved actually. yeah that gets solved really it's not like then then dave shows up with a gun in the third act no like dave's out of there that's it they're like oh is dave following us and it's like no it's the ira <laughs> yeah right yeah 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 i like that scene where where she's like uh, he's down that you know he'll be real mad if you like ask me to go out tomorrow night and then if you kiss me oh boy he'll be over the over the roof <laughs> he's just down there like all grouchy and go like yeah and he won't leave <laughs> <laughs> supposed to be scary i think but i it was funny <laughs> uh i think we hit just about everything that we could uh yeah. for this film uh yeah um i i hadn't seen like i said i hadn't seen this since i saw it so it's been like jesus like 25 years but i um i re- watching it this time i was like oh no i remember that i remember remember that i, I think i remember just about everything that happened so it's um yeah, I think it's a simple movie, and I but I think it's um, it's entertaining and um, and gives you something to think about. I just wish that I had been more perceptive uh, when I saw it um, way back in the day. Yeah, I this is my first time, obviously, and I I still yeah I I liked what it had going for it. You know, regardless of maybe what was intended or not, I I loved it. <laughs> Well, uh, that's it for The Crying Game. We'll take a break for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be back with more backtracking. How would you describe Just Enough Trope? We are the Just Enough Trope podcast. I'm your host, Caliban, joined as always by my co-host. Hi, I'm Mikan Hana. Oh, no, does this mean they can hear all the things I yell at the TV during Downton Abbey? Why did you do that? How do you plead? Let the game begin. Yeah, check these fresh moves. Don't shoot man in face. This isn't the Save Gotham fundraiser. It's the Chill Family Reunion. Master Yoda assigned a Padawan to this bold Jedi. I think it's pronounced Padawan. Oh, Padawan, excuse me. Hey, it's getting late. I think Ralph's going to want his motorcycle back. Uh, go check out the pictures of Dean Gray. I am freaking getting old. <laughs> yeah, I noticed the life clock was blinking in your hand. Get out of here, Wilson. Go fight the Teen Titans or something. I'm unkillable, not unwoundable. You like Sailor Moon, right? Why don't you sail on this d- Wow. Just Enough Trope. News, reviews, and geek fondue every Monday on the Just Enough Trope podcast network. Loving me never have a say you so be sorry. What? All right, we're back, and it's time to talk about the Trek side of the equation. Uh, The citizens of the Federation are good people at heart. They accept other people. They are about personal freedom. It's really like a fun um, social anarchy, basically, uh, in the best way. Uh, but what happens when they run into a civilization that is all about control while espousing being all about collectivism and self-improvement? That's the Borg, everybody, the Federation <laughs> versus the Borg. And Voyager, even though they are far from the Federation, still has to deal with the Borg, which they do in the Voyager episodes, Scorpion Part 1 and 2. In the heart of darkness. My God. In the eye of the enemy. More bodies. Dozens of them dead. Evil has a brand new face. Who could do this to the boar? Their only hope is the unthinkable. What if I made an appeal to the devil? An alliance with the Borg? Could this be the voyage of the damned? We're making a fatal mistake. On the next Star Trek Voyager. At 
death's door. We're going to war. The crew must make a deal with the devil. We have an alliance, do we not? At the gates of hell. They said your galaxy will be purged. Keep your friends close. We will not be assimilated. And your enemies closer. This alliance is terminated. Resistance is futile. On the next Star Trek Voyager. A very different interpretation, I think, of the Scorpion story. Or maybe just the opposite interpretation. There is, and we're going to talk about it right now, there is a lot <laughs> going on in this episode oh, yeah. towards that. You you think that Chakotay is like, let me tell you this story about the, f f I think it's a f fox or whatever, a fox and a scorpion. And you think that the payoff is when uh, seven of nine uh, adjunct tertiary of Unimatrix or whatever uh, sort of betrays them at the end. But there are things going on all throughout these two episodes that are leading to the idea of somebody acting according to their nature, no matter what they're told or necessarily ordered to do. Okay, okay, yeah, that's I, that's true. I'm I, in my mind, I was only going with a very specific view of it, but I'm I'm already <laughs> my mind is already shattered. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a it's such an expand. First of all, uh, I'll spoil my review. It, these are this is a great pair of episodes. Yeah, and I think it really would have. Damn this like hour long, you know, TV show uh, environment like it really would have been like a great 90 minute sort of feature length type type situation. Um, but it it it's funny that it its origins are sort of sort of uh, murky and it uh, took it was it was tough to get it to the screen because they had originally planned um, for the uh, do you remember the year of hell? storyline yes yeah two-parter yeah yes they originally wanted the year of hell two-parter to be the end of the third season and the beginning of the fourth but um the impending cast changes that were coming up uh forced them to sort of rethink that and oh, so okay. they slid this up yeah to this spot and then pushed year of hell back so in midway through the third season there's an episode where Kess is traveling back through her own timeline and she mentions the crinum and the year of hell. And that was like the setup for what was supposed to be the finale. But instead we got Scorpion and then the year of hell does happen, but nobody ever mentions that Kess mentioned it. Like we just have to forget about that. Oh, weird. Kess is gone. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a bummer. That bothers me now. <laughs> <laughs> but this does come at, I think at a great place in Voyager's storyline, because this is like, I guess like what halfway through the third season would be the midpoint of seven seasons. So this is at the end of the third season, but it's really like kind of the midpoint of the show. Like this is where we've had trouble. We've had problems. We've tried to cope with and get used to the idea that this trip might take a long time. But when we run into Borg space, it's like, okay, like this is it. You know, I've, I've mm. promised you hardship. I've promised you challenges uh, on the way back home. And this is where it starts. Yeah. And it, does a really good job of uh, making you feel that. <laughs> and yeah. that, especially for me, who has only seen select Voyager episodes uh, okay. and just kind of jumping in, you know, like if I jump into Best of Both Worlds, for example, I just kind of always have a vibe of where it's at in the yeah. show. Yeah. And you describing that for Voyager to me now, I, I go, okay, I, I felt that way. And I, you know, didn't actually know that before mm -hmm. watching it. Mm hmm. So it's really 
effective in getting that over. Well, speaking of best of both worlds um, and its placement, I mean, this is Voyager's best of both worlds, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's in, a great. In, in the same way that best of both worlds sort of dropped the gauntlet is like, this is where we're going now. Like, this is we're taking it up a notch. Yeah, especially in this where it's like we have brought aboard a new character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No kidding. That doesn't happen a lot in Star Trek. Well, if it happens, it happens around this time. You know, yeah. I have this like theory about um, the third season is where Trek shows uh, really begin to take off, uh-huh. and then the fourth season is where uh, they they change the game. Do you know what I mean? So, okay. like in DS Nine, that's when. Uh, Worf comes on board. Mm-hmm. Um, now you're the, talking my language. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, Dominion War is 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 brewing. But now we've also got the the Klingons in the mix, and of course they'll be very important going forward for the rest of DS9. You know, TNG. We've got Best of Both Worlds. Obviously, it, it leads me to ask, what would the fourth season? What would? Okay, so if the if the end of the third season of the original series hadn't been the end of the series. And also hadn't been Turnabout Intruder, which is the worst episode of the show. What would have been the cool cliffhanger for season three of TOS? And then what would we have seen in the fourth season of TOS? Ooh, wow. That's probably... Because I, I feel like they got into bringing some big stuff back in the movies. Like with yeah. Khan and whatnot. Yeah. Um. So I don't know, maybe maybe we'd have I don't know I don't know if Khan would carry it a show like that back in the day, like as a, a long they wouldn't do arcs, you know, but Yeah, well they did they had like one or you know, um they had one or two like sequel episodes, you know, that there was yeah. a blood sequel episode. Um and Ricardo Maltoan was still a big deal back then. Like he I think if you had brought him back like a year or two later for a, a sequel series or a episode, I think people would have responded to that. That's true. Yeah, maybe maybe some of the storylines they did in the animated series. <laughs> I I don't some know anything of those about it. Began as scripts, yeah, for Star Trek. So that's possible. The the funny thing about that. Oh, you know what? That's okay. You know what? I'm in now because I was just about to say I think that there would have been some real challenge to the power of the Federation, uh, much how in Enterprise. The, the series begins with a promise of a challenge to the Federation's power, but it doesn't really start to pick up until third season and fourth season. Okay, yeah. And I think that you would have seen, I don't know, maybe Balok from the first Federation comes back, or maybe the <laughs> uh, the Tholians become a bigger problem. Yeah. So when I was thinking about the animated series, there's a lot of animated series episodes where they're just talking to some weird guy this week a godlike alien they're never going to come back here but there is a very specific episode uh where they face um oh man the zinti or whatever like the um the the not the, the la- zindi no 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 no. Oh, okay <laughs> i i don't it's it's one of those things where it's like a tz something or other um but they're like these cat-like aliens oh were, I've, yeah i've seen that okay yeah they were created by um uh, Larry Niven, and they're actually like in his known space series. So I'm not sure like how the rights would work here, but they have like their own empire and they're like this um, kind of dangerous foe. Maybe we would have gotten to like a big deal with them and then that would have shaped the fourth season of the original series. Okay. That'd, Although you're right. That'd be kind of cool. 
it was all about the big reset back then. They they barely ever did any kind mm-hmm. of um, ongoing plot lines, which is weird because you had like soap operas and, and stuff like that. Yeah, maybe it was just with that type of show. You just want to hook them in real quick. <laughs> Marshall maybe... Dillon's just killing some new idiot in a cowboy hat every single week. <laughs> I you know I think with the with the movies they they kept doing like Kirk being like I got to get back in the saddle I can't take this anymore <laughs> like maybe they could have done a lot of you know you don't need an arc to do this but maybe they could have done a lot of episodes about like the opposite where it's like ah, maybe maybe I need to retire you know maybe oh, I, I got to call it quits yeah, like yeah. this is run- you know he they had the- some of that he's like <laughs> I'm in lo- I need to be in love you know I met this woman named Carol she's she's perfect yeah 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 so they then you flip it and it would still fit. The movies would still fit if he, you know, did step down. <laughs> Such a modern fan. How do we fit this into canon? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about all these weird things. Uh, every conversation I have about Voyager um, is always tinged with this feeling of like what could have been. Okay. Like they, yeah. they did this and if they'd only dot, dot, dot. And something that I really love about this episode is that it really uh explores the the idea that they have to make hard decisions yes 100%. Um, as yeah as this oh, the only federation ship out here and also that's going to mean that they need to give orders that are tough to give and people will have to decide whether they want to follow those orders and you know are those people federation people who are trained to follow the chain of command and be disciplined, or are they people who have got to where they are and succeeded by doing their own thing mm-hmm. and the way that those styles clash. And unfortunately in your day to day, you know, the, the holy reset uh, sort of structure of a Trek show, you really get to explore that as much as I would have liked to see them do in Voyager. And, and as, cause even it's like even taking into account, you know, stuff that, could have been done better leading up to that. You know, I think they make, they, they make do, but then they overachieve, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. cause I could totally see like how, if there had been more, I feel like there was never emphasis on a lot of stuff people wanted in the early seasons, but I still feel like they got like, they could have laid the groundwork, I guess a little bit better, but even if they hadn't, like they made the best of it. And made it work. Yeah. Yeah. Like your typical day on Voyager, we start off and Neelix is serving scrambled eggs to everybody or whatever. Right. We just get into whatever the plot is. But I feel like this episode, which is written by, you know, the same people that write a lot of them. I think this is um, Braga and Manoski. It seems like they're going out of their way to sort of re-remind you of what the situation is like. Um, This Very early in the first episode, they... They set up Janeway's like reliance on Chakotay, how important he's become. Yeah. She's somebody who would do everything. She'd do the whole thing herself if she could, but she can't. And so she, you know, relies on him. They have a. They specifically have her call out that it's like, I didn't even know your name a couple of years ago, and now you've just helped me through every day of this, and I couldn't do it without you. And they spend a lot of time um, in these initial sort of encounters with the Borg and even the early encounter with um, the bio ships and stuff. They, they spend all this time making our crew look smart. We've, we know our tools. We understand things. Um, Bolana is locking onto people's skeletons <laughs> and, and beaming them out. It's yeah. Like, what? 
Uh, and we Literally. even set up like <laughs> if you for- funny, but I like yeah. <laughs> I know. What if somebody had like a, a screws or in, uh, a hip replacement or something like that? Does that come too? Um, <laughs> and then we, you know, if you didn't know that Kess has telepathic powers, here you go. We set this up because that's going to be important, not just for this storyline, but for the future of the character going forward. And then, of course, into all of that, we drop the Borg. Yeah. Yeah, and and then new things on top of it, and they're constantly learning not just new things about the Borg, really, but new things about a new species, and yeah. it all, it it's never too much, you know. It's all yeah. it all flows. For, yeah, for being the episode that uh, introduces the character of Seven of Nine, who would go on to be very important in, in Voyager, and arguably in the Trek franchise as a whole, this is not an episode about Seven Seven of Nine. Like no. she is, she is just the guest star, like bad guy of the week for basically the entire episode until the end when she's lying in sickbay. It's great though; it plants the seeds, and in, in mm-hmm. we we mm-hmm. get all we need is one line of, or not even one line, but I guess a line in a scene of "You were a human," and it's like, boom, you know, we know we know what's up there. Yeah, which is funny to think about. They, you know, when they make this deal, and as oh. <laughs> God, it's an episode with uh, the Borg. It's an episode with a brand new species that has a hundred times as much DNA as us and comes from fluid-filled so much space DNA. dimension. Oh, and also Leonardo da Vinci's in this episode. <laughs> it's just <laughs> something that just like gets forgotten, I think. Um, but yeah, like as Janeway retreats to the holodeck and da Vinci's workshop to sort of think over this conundrum, she comes up with this idea of this this deal with the devil and they make this deal and almost immediately you know the board keep trying to kind of get out of it like in their own sort of like legalese way yeah because they're like okay don't assimilate us and they're like fine they grab them what are you doing we don't want to be assimilated oh we're going to give you this implant so we can all talk with our brains together and we're (laughs) like uh we don't want that either and she's she brings up like what about something like locutus well when you say that, remember, Locutus was Jean-Luc. You didn't know that the Borg had, like, talky humans that they keep in storage for this moment, which I'm just assuming that that's what Seven of Nine is. Like, she is a diplomatic unit or something like that. Uh-huh. Was she, like, offering herself? Was she offering, like, a member of her crew to be the bridge between oh. the Borg and Voyager? I just assumed since they could communicate with the Borg, I guess they don't really would wouldn't really need a person there though because they were talking to them. Yeah, I don't that's, know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But they weren't really getting anywhere. It was all these like barked commands and stuff. And uh, so we get, okay, yeah. So they deploy seven of nine. Who I'm just assuming like every once in a while the Borg must find a race that they either can assimilate or for some unknown reason they need to talk to a while before they assimilate. And that that example that we see is in Best of Both Worlds when they yeah. use Jean-Luc Picard to say, <laughs> and you have to wonder why they, I'm assuming they do it because the Borg aren't dumb. Like they think they can win this fight, but it'd be great to like have a bunch of ships left when you win the fight. So yeah. instead they make Picard say, hey, why not just give up? Uh, it's like Howard says in Uncut Gems. You want to win by one or you want to win by 30 points? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. So they just have somebody like uh, Seven of Nine lying around who happens to be human. Mm. Maybe can, after uh, it didn't work with Picard, they're like, well, we got it. We got another human in store. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Some I, idiots flew out to the Delta Quadrant a long time ago. 
from Janeway's perspective, I have to just think it's like you've got to have something that can talk to us, you know, like yeah, it's, yeah. I think it's a fair assumption that you could rig up a human. I love the contradiction of how determined and how hard she is, but at the same time, she is do. I mean, she calls it a deal with the devil or an appeal to the devil, but she's doing this thinking, I know we can do this. I know that we can cooperate with them. Mm-hmm. And it isn't necessarily like a milk of human kindness, like she has faith in the Borg type thing. She has faith in her own crew. And the fact that the the Federation has negotiated its way out of worse things in this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like she really does think if we st- we have a plan, if we stick to this plan, we've got this thing, they need it. And if we treat them respectfully and everybody follows the plan. We're going to get out of this. And I, I just love the fact that she does all that while threatening to self-destruct her <laughs> ship, threatening to delete the doctor, basically killing one of her crew members and also taking like the solution with it. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. It, there was something about her character that I guess I, because I've not gone too far into Voyager, it's like stuff that I, it hasn't stuck with me, but this time that really stuck out was what you said earlier. She would do all this alone if she could, like she will keep pushing through, you know, almost no matter what mm-hmm. and is determined to do whatever. And, you know, for better or for worse, it feels like, or, you know, like whether yeah. you think it's right or not. And I, I think that that ends up being a storyline, even when they, after they have seven of nine, a little bit in mm-hmm. the next, the follow up episode to this. So, yeah, I dug it. Yeah, I She's... liked it a lot. 100% that CO for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sometimes um, where I was where I thought like like maybe they should show someone like more than Chakotay but like you know like the doctor didn't seem too bothered by it, you know that he might be deleted. <laughs> he was just like, "Well, I hope that doesn't happen," you know, like Yeah, right. I don't know. That's that that was that's my only like kind of gripe a little bit with with Voyager sometimes is like you know I feel like someone would be upset by this. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody is. I guess, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, and that is Chakotay, who I like the fact that when she gives her plan to everybody, because first of all, I love how they they pull into Borg space. There's Borg everywhere, and they're like, we found this one spot where there's no Borg. That's probably safe, right? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> uh, no, is it maybe that the Borg are scared to go there? <laughs> and that's what it is. Um but then she lays out her plan and she goes, here's what we'll do. We'll we'll do this thing. We'll do this exchange. They'll escort us through. We've got it. And you can see, like, everybody in the room is like, all right, boss. That doesn't seem great. And as soon as they leave, Chakotay is immediately like, this is not going to work. They're, you can't trust them. Here's a little story about a scorpion and a, and a fox. <laughs> and I don't think it's going to work. And he still does it, which is an important milestone because he's the guy who quit Starfleet, but he respects the idea of the chain of command. But I also love the fact that she's they're literally sedating her for surgery. And she's like, keep the Alliance together. And he's like, okay, okay. And then almost immediately after that, he's like, all right, we're breaking this Alliance. Uh, shoot those guys out of an airlock. <laughs> yeah. Let's get out of here. Yeah. That was good. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> and this, it's so fascinating because Humans will argue endlessly that it's important that they all have free will, that they all have a voice and a say in it, While even while Seven of Nine mocks them for that. And yet the second the commander goes down, the second in command is like, no, no, I have a different idea. And we start to see like the 
disadvantages and the drawbacks of individualism. Yeah. And, and you know, maybe not in this episode, but I feel like through sometimes with their contact with the Borg or Seven of Nine, like there's almost the contradictions or whatever. Like, you know, we we say this is good, but then we don't always stick to that, I guess. Yeah. Like, like I'm thinking with Seven of Nine bringing on her, her on board, this doesn't happen in this episode, but they almost like decide for her, like, you're going to be human again. You know, like, <sighs> yeah. Maybe There's... that's a whole other rabbit hole to go down, though. Well, it you know, it is. Um, I love Janeway, and I'm a razor's edge from just declaring that she's my favorite captain, but she makes a series of decisions. Well, they're not a series because these episodes are mostly unconnected, but <laughs> she, makes, she makes a number of decisions that Picard always weaseled his way out of. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Kirk rolls in, he talks your computer to death, he destroys your snake god or whatever, and <laughs> we just assume that I guess you're going to be okay. And there's a lot of decisions that Picard's like, I really hope that we don't have to make this decision. Yeah. And then something usually happens where it's like, thank God we didn't have to do that. Janeway has to do that. A mm-hmm. lot of times she yeah. ends up having to make that decision. And that's one of these decisions. I mean, clearly this, this I was going to call her a woman, clearly this Borg does not want to become human, wants to go back to the Borg, but that is not an option. Uh-huh. And so forget medical proxy, forget the sovereignty of her own body. The decision is she dies or we'll turn her back to human and do it. Right. And she never, she never, I don't know if you're familiar with the episode Tuvix at all, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm familiar a little okay. bit. <laughs> <laughs> she never really agonizes over that decision yes, the way yeah. that she does Tuvix. And I think part of it is, you know, we have the meta knowledge as viewers that this is the new character with the tight booty that we're going to see for the next three years. <laughs> yeah. So we don't necessarily question it as an audience, but I wish they'd taken it the whole way and had her really be like, I don't know if this is the right thing to do. We have clearly caused a lot of distress for this person. We have basically like birthed a baby that uh-huh. we're going to have to take care of. And she does take care of her over the next three years. That's... But at that moment, <laughs> maybe there's too much stuff going on. But at that moment, it's never the it weight of the decision is never really like is, is weighed all that much. That's my Yeah, my issue is like because I, I do believe, you know, I'm sold that Janeway would make that decision. And, you know, while it's it's wrong or whatever, like, a, you know, I believe as a character she would make that and it's like complicated. But then it's like the next seven of nine episode. She's like. This is where the consequence doesn't come in, where Seven of Nine's like, you know, okay, teach me or whatever. Like, you know, like, I want you to like me, Janeway. And it's like, Seven (laughs) of Nine should be mad at her for, like, the rest of the series. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) I'm okay with the decision, but, like, like, they immediately made the character be like, you know, now I'm your mentor. It's like, there Mm. should have been another character she connects with or something. You know what I mean? Like finds her humanity or whatever but like Janeway I feel like never has to like make up for it. She yeah, like she can um talk to the doctor or Naomi Wildman, but whenever she sees the captain it's just like mm, no, forget it. Yeah, but you know, conflict in Star Trek is See, that would have worked because, uh, you know, behind the scenes, famously, Kate Mulgrew was not excited about the addition of Jerry Ryan to the show. Oh. And yet she is such a fucking professional as is jerry ryan that you never see that in any of their scenes but they hated each other yeah wow well they both are killing it so 
And even after Janeway makes that decision, which I think is totally the Janeway decision to make, you've got somebody like Chakotay, who if Janeway didn't recover or was still recovering, Chakotay might have been like, okay, prepare a torpedo tube and bye-bye 709, just get rid of her too. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Because he just flushes those other guys. Like there are, she, she survives by chance. Like he blows everybody out of there and does a little Borg mini genocide. And then they're like, oh, one Borg survived. It's the one who had her name in the credits. Yeah, and Chakotay, they they only briefly mention it, but they talk about how he was like a board, like or like connected to the collective. Right, right. Um, I thought that was something they could have like played up a little bit more, but it it was effective what they did, and I guess it made the their solution a better surprise, a better twist. Yeah, the episode where that happens to him is is not a very good. No, I I actually remember that one a little bit, and I just remember thinking like, oh, this is what they're gonna do with the Borg. Okay. Yeah, there were there they'd had that, and then they had at the end of I think another Chicote episode, um, where they're on this planet, and no, it has nothing to do with the Borg. And then the last twenty seconds, uh, they're on the planet, and Janeway's like, "What did you want me to see? Uh, we found something in our scans." And they pull back this thing, and it's like, "It's a Borg." And they're like, "Oh no!" And that <laughs> credits. That's it. So it's like, okay, I guess the Borg are gonna show up. Pretty uh, soon. Well, I guess it's good that. Like this is, I feel, I think it's the first big Borg episode in Voyager, yeah. and yeah. they immediately, like, not they subvert your expectations. In the teaser, in the teaser, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, they immediately blow blow everything you know up. You know? Yeah, and they're like, you th- you want to know about the Borg? Well, guess what? You're learning about species something something <laughs> numbers. <laughs> Uh, not uh, not aliens, not Geiger aliens. Uh, Eight four seven two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I love, like, goddamn Minoski. He's got 47 in there. <laughs> 8472. Yeah. yeah uh, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think of Species 8472? Um, I, you know, I think uh, I think the last time I went through the select episodes of Voyager, I didn't like it, but I was I was sold on this, actually. Mm. Uh, I love it. Um, I always prefer, I always prefer, like, uh, practical-looking aliens and special effects in star trek but i felt like it was worth making an exception for these guys yeah um partially because it sold how like they're from a totally other dimension or whatever right like their space is completely different Mm -hmm. um it works for this just this period of time as far as special effects goes Mm -hmm. and um it's also just getting away from you know stuff that looks like humans yeah, and they worked really hard on the um, the CGI for the aliens as well. Um, they had reached a point um, it, at this point in Voyager where they thought that they could they could pull something like this off. Yes, um, and there had been times like even like remember Macrocosm <laughs> we talked about on the show with the uh, the alien pastiche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were even parts in there that was actually the episode that convinced them that they could do this. Okay, but some of the parts in Macrocosm were like. Eh. Okay. I think it's maybe more about actors interacting with things that aren't there than the the technical capability of the computers. Um, uh-huh. But but that is taken care of mostly in this episode. And if you want more technical details, you can uh, look it up on um, Memory Alpha, or we actually have an episode about uh, Scorpion on Enterprising Individuals this year where we talk about some of the technical aspects. Oh, nice. But, yeah, they, they really... Um, hemmed and hawed and sort of um, wondered about whether they should do a full CGI, but 
yeah, I think the result is um, is satisfying. Yeah, I would like them to, you know, I would like Star Trek to be selective about it. You know, like, do you need? You don't need a CG Gorn. You know, <laughs> you could put a guy in a lizard suit. But yeah, right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you get him uh, in Enterprise. Exactly. Um, but in this, it's like you can't just put a guy in a suit. And, and they and they designed the it effect. for that reason. Yeah, they gave it like a th- you know a third leg. And the way that they have like those, like their neck is like if you took the skin off of somebody's neck, they have like detached tendons and parts that you oh, can see yeah. through. They designed Chris. all those things so you would know that there was like not a person in there. It was it was all CGI. Yeah, so real, just really clever all around on the design. I think. I think that the they're a little too, you know, like power creepish. Like you know, you've got to get something that can beat the Borg, and the Borg is the toughest there is. Then these guys have. They have a hundred times GNA, and they've got psychic <laughs> powers, man, and they can spit acid, yeah. and they've got three legs, and yeah, that, and, and their and their <laughs> ships can do a to a Voltron gun thing that makes a Death Star that can blow up planets. <laughs> and stuff. I kind of liked it though, because when they inter- when they introduce the Borg into Star Trek, it's very much like you you think you can beat anything, but what if what if you had to fight something that you can't beat? Basically, uh, yeah. it, it was this very much yeah. that. This isn't uh, John Colicos uh, with blackface on. Like these are space <laughs> space zombies. Like now what? Yeah. Uh, so it's like what? Yeah, it, it is power creep or whatever. But I think for this purpose, it works. You know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I I kind of loved it. I didn't know the thing about. I missed the line about hundred times DNA or something. That's like some Dragon Ball Z power level <laughs> stuff. But <laughs> no. <laughs> And they have uh, they come from fluidic space, which I think that if you could take anything away from this, that's it's, it. That's crazy. Yeah, that's uh, that's in that's insane. I know. Like, imagine like you know you think of like the primordial soup on Earth. Imagine if the universe was primordial soup. Right. Like, what would come out of that? Or how does it even work? Like, I'm, I'm not worried about ships because like we've established that like Voyager can maneuver. In atmosphere, um, I think it goes underwater, I think, in later episodes. But, like, if you generate a warp bubble, you are changing space. So it doesn't really matter what medium you're in. Like, you can still travel at warp, right? But yeah, like, if you're, so. But if it, there, are there planets in their, in their gal- or, uh, universe? Are there suns? Like, how does that work? Is there gravity? <laughs> yeah, right. Why they build ships? I guess, Well, I guess they go faster through the... Yeah, and plus yeah. the ships are made of the same stuff they are. So, like, do they secrete the ships, or are these shit chips? Is that do they shit the ships? <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I'm detecting species eight four seven two shits <laughs> off the starboard bow. Again, I like I like that it's like you expect you sort of expect you know we're in the Borg territory, so like we're going to spend this series learning more about the Borg. You're going to be surprised, you know. That Star Trek loves you know I Borg they twisted the borg somewhat you know yeah so you expect that but then they come in and they're like fluidic space (laughs) whoa "Whoa, okay okay what do you think about that leonardo da vinci (laughs) what what what, yeah they should have talked they should have asked him specifically what to do what do you think about these aliens (laughs) yeah none of this bullshit like you you you're talking about crap and and i come up with some great idea like well, here it is, Leonardo. We've got fluidic space aliens. What would you do? You're a genius. <laughs> He'd figure it they, out. They they do that. I love those shows where um, you, you just assume that 
this guy's a genius. Like when you bring Shakespeare to, you know, the 21st century and he's like, no, I get it. It's a cell phone. You know, it's a words, words through the air. Uh, Cause I'm a genius. <laughs> genius yeah. is a ha- genius knows no time zone. Um, but, and they kind of do that later on. Uh, the Da Vinci character comes back for another episode where he gets his hands on the doctor's mobile emitter. And so he finds himself in a, you know, culture where he's seeing alien technology and different aliens. And he thinks he's in like, oh, this is the Americas. But he's like, check this out. This this uh, gun shoots lightning and it's like a phaser. <laughs> okay. I've never seen that. That sounds cool. <laughs> it's, it's okay. <laughs> I don't know if it's great, but they do fly that, uh, that, they get that glider to work though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like that she's like, like playing games with him when she like so clearly has such an advantage <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. but that's i guess that's kind of like the uh the power fantasy of going on the holodeck you know right yeah <laughs> in this uh timeline of the holodeck some brilliant woman like gave some suggestions to da vinci and suddenly he's like got a working car or something like that it is it is why the, does, uh... instead of flapping why not soaring and he's like oh i'm so dumb i didn't think of that <laughs> yeah she would have loved assassin's creed <laughs> yeah no kidding yeah oh yeah that'd be an awesome holodeck experience oh i'm a badass assassin and da vinci wants to be my best friend <laughs> yeah <laughs> da vinci wants to hang out with me no big deal um i i love uh the Borg action, I love uh, the Species 8472 action and everything they go through in this episode. But something that I really love is the conflict between Janeway and Chakotay, which, yes. you know, like I mentioned earlier, I don't think ever really gets explored all the way. But this is you take what you get. And I love the fact that they are so in sync and so chummy early on when they're not being challenged. And then later on, they have a fight. You know, I mean, they basically just. He tells her, you're wrong. You're, you're wrong. You, they're too dangerous. Um, you have a thing. Oh, boy. A man's telling a woman uh, something uh, <laughs> where you don't, know, you don't know when to step back. You, know, you, you think you see it too clearly. You think you understand the situation. And he's got a point, And she's got a point, too, that yeah. they have an opportunity. If we, we could wait for them to fight it out. But if we wait and one of them wins and it's the wrong one, then we're double fucked. You know, so yes, we need to move now when the chaos is and if she only wins the argument because she's the boss and later on when she's not the boss and he's the boss, he makes a different decision. And when she wakes up, she's pissed. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I can't I remember. It. I, yeah. I can't remember if if like court martial comes out in the air. I mean, <laughs> what's she going to do? Like they've got 60 years to get home still. But She's, you know, she's she's of the mind that he had no right to do that. Now, I kind of disagree with her because yeah. if she's incapacitated, I mean, there's a precedent for like standing orders. But if she's incapacitated and he doesn't know if he's, she's going to wake up, like it's his ship. Yeah, no, I that was what was good about this was I feel like there's like you can almost look at both of their sides and go like fair point to at least some of it, you know, like, yeah. OK, I get what you're doing. And I guess in the end, like the. They were both, they both had ideas that made them successful. So, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. And even with those d- disagreements, they're still able to work together at the end. I love the little, you know, the the, the little magic trick that uh, Janeway does, where she's, um, they have the disagreement, and she comes back to seven, and she says that you know I send her to the brig, 
um, which is kind of like a, an, an olive branch to the Borg saying, uh, he killed your people, you know, we, we put him in jail. But then when the Borg turns on her, she's like, the codename Scorpion. <laughs> you know, they're ready to, <laughs> to spring the trap card that they had ready to go the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like, because at first I was like, because she just goes, well, we just need to get along and we can we can disagree, but we need to we just need to get along or whatever. And I was like, well, that's this seems like I'm, I'm sensing like a cop out ending coming here. <laughs> but it was it wasn't. It just felt like, a, you know, like, let's just get along now, even though we have disagreements. But it, it sounded like, you know, then they they reveal the plan. And yeah. you just you trust that okay they they came up with a sort of a compromise you know that or at least not a compromise but they took both their perspectives to create this one because Chakotay has this whole story about the scorpion and right. you know the moral of it actually turns out to be not just don't trust the scorpion but you got to sting the scorpion <laughs> while it's not <laughs> while it's not looking. <laughs> <laughs> when when you're close enough to let it go <laughs> that's funny um yeah i mean like people's natures uh, and them cleaving to them are all over you know this episode or this mm-hmm. series of episodes um people just not being able to be swayed by something or just being being you know we are we are the sum of the total of our experiences right like right. chakotay is somebody who watched authority and watched the Federation just leave when he needed them the most to protect like um, his home and the Maquis. And so, yeah, I mean, you kind of get where everybody's coming from and I don't know, like it's one of those things where I don't want to say morality is subjective. I don't believe that. I I think that there is probably, I don't know. Well, how do you question for you? (laughs) Okay. The Federation has its ideals, right? Uh-huh. They pull into a, a planetary system where the people of that system are doing something they don't like, um, oh, something man. that they would consider like, you know, like a rights abuse. What is their responsibility to those people, if any? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> this is like this is like every prime directive episode. Boiled down. <laughs> But I've heard people say uh, that I've heard people say that the prime directive is a great idea, but I feel like I've heard more people say that the prime directive is a bad idea and it is cowardice for a, a society with so much power to do good, to see bad things happen and to let them happen, that is like the definition of evil. Right. Right. But then I guess Yeah, but then I guess it's like hmm who who's deciding these things like, you know, yeah. do we think Starfleet, like, can you do the flip side of the prime directive? You know, you have that rule, but then you, you could actually decide what's right or wrong or, you know, what, like, let's not interfere here because, because of the X, Y, and Z. Like, I can just see it being subverted or, you know, the morality being decide decided by who, you know, like, it's yeah. just, it's, yeah. Playing God. Yeah. So, I. Uh, I think, I don't know. I'm. I do. I do believe though. Like, maybe it's. It isn't up for you to decide for other. Like you as a culture to decide what's good for other people. You know, like 
when you need to take care of yourself, I guess, in general. But yeah. I've not seen it on a, like, a scale like that. You know, I only can see it in terms of, like, like our country, you know, how we live. And it's like, it does feel like, you know, sometimes hypocritical to talk about human rights abuses, at least from the government's perspective, you know, when mm-hmm. it's like we need to solve some things ourselves as well, you know. Right. Um, and not, yeah. But I mean, doing those, I don't know, like maybe I'm <clears throat> naive or um, maybe my, my philosophy is just too, um, too pie in the sky. But like, I believe like the right thing to do is to do as much with some education. Yeah. To do as much good as you can. Uh-huh. And, and if you do that, even the bad that you end up doing w- wouldn't equal the good that you end up doing. Do you know what I mean? Like the un- unintended consequences of doing something bad, and maybe it's utilitarian, I don't know, but might hurt <laughs> some people, but you ultimately will help yeah. more people, which is maybe what a Irish, straight Irish filmmaker thinks when he makes a movie about, uh. <laughs> about LGBTQ people. And uh, okay. he, he is not part of that world <laughs> at all, just to bring it back home. Yeah. It's just so hard to think about it in the terms of Star Trek. Be- like you said, it's pie in the sky, but like at least what we knew about Star Trek at this time or even like during TNG, it was extremely pie in the sky. You know, we were very arrogant about um, how good we were and the good that we could do, I think, in the 80s and early 90s when these episodes are being written. In, sure. TNG. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> don't <laughs> do don't fail to do good because you don't know. You know, because you don't, because you feel like you don't know enough about the situation. Okay, do you know what I mean? Okay, yeah, I, I can see that. Maybe I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but I just from that, from the particular uh, example of um, for um, gay and lesbian people, like don't you if you're somebody who's straight and you want to help, you're going to make mistakes, and they yeah, will yeah. tell you that you have made mistakes, and then you can change it and not make those mistakes anymore. Oh, sure, yeah, definitely. In that case. Most definitely. I, I guess I was thinking in the terms of like intervening in war. foreign conflicts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but definitely on a personal on a personal level, I strongly agree with that, that you should, you know, always tr- try to do the best you can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nobody knows where the parable of the scorpion and the frog came from. That specific parable is... I've heard it called a Russian parable. Uh, it was featured uh, and apparently made famous in the English-speaking <laughs> world by the 1955 movie Mr. Arkadin, which is written okay. and directed and starring uh, Orson Welles. And he credited uh, it to Russia. Uh, there's another variation that is a Persian fable called The Scorpion and the Tortoise. Okay, okay. And it's, it's almost some passive animal, sure. Right. But it's almost exactly the same. But the point is, is that the tortoise has a shell, right? So halfway through, the uh, scorpion tries to sting the tortoise, fails, and the tortoise is like, uh, "I knew you were bad." And it really is more like about how good people are good, bad people are bad, and don't associate with bad people because they're just gonna, you know, try to sting you. But in this case, the hero of this the tortoise like isn't stung but he is just his his belief in bad people being bad is affirmed yeah yeah i kind of like (laughs) the russian one better because at least it's got like 
some good tragedy in its storytelling. <laughs> it's <laughs> but it also a, isn't it's like a terrible story. I think it's actually. not go either way. Yeah, but it's not like super smug and superior. It's it's interesting. I think in the context of these two pieces of media where people are trying to use them as an example, and it's yeah. like if you think about it for long enough, it kind of falls apart a little bit. Or at least the metaphor is is different than what they intended it to be. I think that's true of both pieces of media. Yeah, I think that it's easy to say that, and I think people will definitely act in their own interest or in the interest of others if they've put that above their own. But we see people's um, natures be questioned and change in both uh, examples of media as well. And so nothing is, is hard and fast, I don't think. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and then partially, and then partially, you got to consider that if you're the frog, you just need to keep one eye on the scorpion the whole time. <laughs> that's actually yeah. that's what's great about their two philosophies, Janeway and Chakotay, is they they both believe like, hey, we got to keep an eye on these things. Oh, they have no question about. Yeah, they know the scorpion <laughs> has a sting for sure. Yeah, but I, I think Janeway is just like we must be vigilant, but work with them. And Chakotay and them together turn out come up with. We need to stab them in the back. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> we, we're going to scorpion the scorpion. <laughs> Who scorpions the scorpion? <laughs> I love it. Uh, something that makes Trek Trek is the technology of their future, which sometimes facilitates what the characters are doing, but just as often is the actual complication they're dealing with. So on every show, we randomly pick from a list of Star Trek technology, and we add what we pick to the non-Trek media, and we subtract it from the Trek episode and see how each would be different. It's our technological exchange, and I'm going to pick on our list of 10 technologies from Star Trek. We've got phasers, we've got holodecks, tricorders, transporters, warp drive, replicators, communicators, shields, advanced medical tech, (laughs) and androids. And I'm going to roll on my random number selector device. And there's no way we can, nothing could screw this up, right? Um, Not like last week. Uh, (laughs) I got a two. I got holodecks and holographic technology. Oh, interesting. Not what I expected. Me either. So (laughs) if, if, if simulated experience and holodecks existed in the world of the crying game, how would it be different? Uh, it's my first like thing with these is always just like the like how would it change the plans? Like oh they like for Forrest Whitaker doesn't realize he's actually not talking to any people in the carnival in the beginning. Right? Oh. Yeah. Ooh, they yeah, but that's not that's not. Or as, Miranda uh, Richardson is Stephen Ree's character. Oh. He just like <laughs> pulls off like a you know a hollow uh, Mission Impossible thing. And yes, Stephen Reed. <laughs> That's great. Or yeah, the, or that'd be a good way to uh, maybe you know maybe you could have a better ending. Then you could have some sort of uh, hijinks with with hiding out from the IRA in the end. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you do, but you can bamboozle them, make them think they're assassinating. Oh yeah. Well, first of all, the 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 judge that they're trying to kill, who we get it, it's a whorehouse. Like the first time we see the the hotel where the um, that's a slash you know brothel or, or cat house or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, there is a closed window, but it's backlit, 
and we see a silhouette of a man and woman embracing. It's like, okay, we got it. And then the next time we cut back to it, it's daytime, so the silhouette doesn't work. So there's literally like a woman in a bra, <laughs> like <laughs> looking out the window, like, oh, what's out there? Oh, nothing, I guess. Closes the window. So it's <laughs> like, gonna, well, no, no, we, we yeah. remember, we remember what it was. Yeah. Yeah. But that would that would just be a um hollow, you know, sex uh, dungeon, hol- holodeck type. Yeah, thing. one of one of Quark's weird things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the hollow sweet uh, Vulcan love slave. Mm. Yeah, you I mean you could you could have a fun you know, you could also have more fun bar scenes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the um the the cabaret thing that would be a lot more exciting. You could have um backgrounds, you could have like effects and like it could be raining, like while she's singing. And, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. A sci-fi version of the Crying Game. Jim Broadbent's character would be a hologram. Oh, wait. oh, the the bartender is the that? bartender. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's something. Uh, so when she's like unreal about him. Yeah, she's like, tell him I'm not talking to him. You know, he'd be like, she, she, she she's not talking to you. <laughs> yeah, or he'd be like, I am uh, not programmed to respond in this way. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um. No, that's it. <laughs> that's all we got. <laughs> well, I think that <laughs> yeah, it's, it's something that like is earth shattering for them. You know what I no, mean? Like, no, yeah. I think that the the movie, the strength of the movie is that it's just such a fundamental story. I think you, you could take it out of the early nineties. It doesn't have to be IRA. I think you could put it anywhere, and it and it would still be the same story. It would still work. Oh, I hesitate yeah. to call it noir because mm. there are people I know who. <laughs> We'll get angry because noir has to have very specific elements, but I think that it is kind of like that. In so, yeah, in certain elements. I Maybe. don't know if there is a um, a whole genre of like um, of LGBTQ like noir, but I'd love to see it if there is. Yeah, that sounds pretty sweet. I, you know, I was thinking maybe it's you know the 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 gimmick that we talked about, the twist. Maybe you make the twist. She's a hologram. But then, then that takes away it speaking to anything. Well, but, but that yeah, would be the that would be the like uh, low rent sci fi remake of this, you know? <laughs> like, right. And that, it, well, you know, I mean, ugh, I don't think Trek's ever done this with holograms, but I feel like when a character falls in love or expresses uh, affection for a hologram, people are always like, oh, "Really? You're living of the hologram?" Yeah. And nobody yet has turned that into. A metaphor for like, you know, somebody that you're not supposed to love. It's like you, don't, well, you don't really like that. Come the, on, the doctor fall in love with somebody. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so that, but they probably, I don't know what they do with that. I can't speak on it, but <laughs> it would be a bad twist. Just kind of, I mean, in certain ways, the twist is not what makes this good. So, yeah, they tr- try real hard though. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, that was. Did you read the? It seems like we read all the same articles um, off of Google. But like, did you read the one that kind of criticized the film because um, keeping it a twist means that it ha- it has no context for us. Like, if we knew that, if we knew d- d- uh, the reality of Dill's character um, when Fergus gets there, then he's the only one that doesn't know. So there's a dr- dramatic irony, but we understand what it means to Dill as a character. And all the other people in her in her cir- circle, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think it's possible that you could play it like. I that. I think there's an argument for that 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 yeah. would be the better way to do it and not be so, so, uh, sensational. But we got what we got. Yep. <laughs> all right, so we take holograms away from oh, Scorpion. Boy. Then, well, goodbye, Doctor. We're first screwed. Bye, <laughs> bye, Harry Kim. 
Yeah, bye bye Harry Kim's. He's uh, got tendrils everywhere. The doctor is not coming to your aid. Yeah. Uh, no Leonardo, uh, which arguably means that uh, Janeway never has her big uh, brain idea about having an <laughs> alliance with the Borg. Wow. Yeah. I guess I didn't realize how much holographic, holo- hologramic technology. I don't even know holographic technology. <laughs> What's what are they? Ho- holograms. They're holograms. So sure. the doctor. Didn't didn't really think about it like that, but yeah, it's crucial. I've I've wondered too. Um, I guess you could just have like a TV screen to like talk to um, other ships and stuff like that. But the view screen that we see is this is one of my favorite like subtle details of Trek technology is holographic. You know, oh. we can't when we when we look at it straight on day after day, we don't like really get an impression of it. But there are many times when they'll they want to change the angle it's not just looking at picard's face reverse angle looking at a square you'll get that shot where you get picard and the view screen in the same shot you know picard's in the foreground the view screen's in front of him and on the view screen the romulan or whoever he's talking to their head is we see them slightly from the side they are facing picard if it was just a flat view screen we just see a flat face but we don't we see you know, a side oh. view of that person's face, which means that that is curved or, or, or a projection, a holographic projection. I've never known that. <laughs> I've never even noticed that, actually. Yeah, it's so it's subtle and they don't really call attention to it. And I really like it. Wow. That's that's canon. You're telling me that's canon. Well, I don't know if anybody's ever like <laughs> written an article oh, okay. on Memory Alpha, but if you just, you know, look at uh, ship scenes, you'll, you'll see it. Yeah, because now they just straight up have the hologram, which I think is not as cool. Yeah. Although, I mean, they have that technology. I guess it makes sense to do. I just, I either want them to do it or not. And I don't care. I don't need Mm -hmm. some, some twisted, like justification, like they have in discovery as to why, you know, (laughs) Captain Pike doesn't like holograms or something like that. That's very prequel. That's a waste of time for me. Yeah. I think in general their lives on the ship would be more miserable because their recreation would be even more limited. So they'd probably be even more desperate in this episode too. La- yeah, <laughs> they're just we gotta take that way home if we got it. Yeah. yeah, a lot of checkers. They'd go into the Northwest Passage, I think for sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I I know like technically bad name, uh, actually, right? Well, technically, like, and ironically, because of climate change, I think that, you know, there are definite Northwest passages now where you can, you know, sail from one end of the continent to the other. But isn't it kind of ironic to call it that when explorers in, you know, early times looked for this thing that didn't exist? They thought that they were easily going to be able to Mm. sail through this continent. And, uh, yeah, you think Voyager would know their history a little better? Well, maybe, you know, Meta, that's a great name. I thought it was just kind of a cheesy name, but now I like it. So <laughs> I like it when I like the dramatic irony of Starfleet officers not knowing how much they don't know. Yeah, you know, it happened a couple hundred years ago. You know, this. <laughs> they detect this area and they're like, "It's fine." There's just a bunch of quantum singularities in it. Well, that's never been a problem. Yeah, Borg just—they're allergic, probably. Borg allergy. You know, they're all itchy, yeah. And it, when you don't have fingers, you've only got like a you know little thing that goes back and forth. You can't scratch. Oh yeah, their little claw don't doesn't work. That's. <laughs> <laughs> I think we nailed it. We, did, uh, we nailed it. <laughs> last week's exchange killed the episode. Actually, killed the episode and the uh, film. 
and uh, this week, uh, just fine. Everything, everybody's fine. Yeah. Well, we enhanced one thing, and then we, you know, we did kill another thing. I guess. Well, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> Should we tell people what's coming up on the next episode of Backtracking? Okay, so our next episode is uh, it's what is I guess a bonus. It's a it's a triple threat. Um. <laughs> Don't get people's hopes up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll see how it how what we do with it, but we're gonna be talking about uh, the episode "The Wounded." from Star Trek The Next Generation, mm-hmm. and how it relates, maybe is inspired by Heart of Darkness, which in itself inspired Apocalypse Now. So it's like, it's going multiple ways, which I think will be fun. Yeah, you know, just a little light reading and a little light movie watching. <laughs> light, very light. And it'll be fine. It'll be Can a we make a gentleman's agreement right now that we're not doing the redo, we're just watching apocalypse now the yeah okay i'm so down with that we don't want to do that redo no no, stay out of that no no so that'll be uh (laughs) light and fun and enjoying uh for the next time that we come back but that's it for this week's backtracking thanks for listening everybody if you like the show tell a friend and follow us at at backtracking on twitter and also tell us what you think that we should check out in future episodes uh gooey tell the people where they can find you online uh find me on twitter at gooey fame uh, check out from their virtual theater. As you mentioned, we're going to be mm-hmm. talking about Sonic the Hedgehog in the impending week. So uh, we're pretty excited about that. So it's going to be fun. Nice. And I'm on Twitter at at K-A-1-I-B-A-N. That's Caliban on Twitter. And Enterprising Individuals, by the time that you hear this, will be up and running. Our first supplemental episode will be out, uh, which is a companion piece to our premiere episode on which we talk about Captain's Holiday, the TNG episode. So you can check that out at at EISTpod on Twitter or at enterprisingindividuals.com. That's it for us. We'll see you soon. And until then, keep on trekking. Trekking.